May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. The reading from the Old Testament this morning is from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of Israelites journeyed by stages, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidimin, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading today is the story that Pastor Diana was sharing with the children, the story of a conversation between Jesus and a woman from Samaria at a well. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where your people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pastor Diana said I didn't get much sleep last night. I want to explain myself. I spent the night here at the church with our confirmation class. We have 11 youth in confirmation class, and Louise Spear and I were the adults here for the overnight. I want to thank Louise and Betty, who was here yesterday during the day, to teach some of the class with me, to all the parents who made it possible for this to happen as well, and to my dad, Jay, who's visiting, who came and helped in the kitchen. We cooked together. We have some new stoves in the upstairs kitchen, and nothing is more fun than trying to figure out how to cook with 11 middle schoolers. (laughs) So we ate and were nourished. Um, I also want to share with you uh, my gratitude to Sabrina Simmons, who was here with us for part of last evening too, and I want to share news of the death of her mother, which happened early this morning. Sabrina's not here today, uh, but we hold her in prayer as we give thanks for the life of Cheryl Simmons. Will you pray with me now? Oh, holy God, 
I pray that your spirit would be present with us, gathered in this this place, physical and virtual, in our community as a whole, that it would bring blessing and wisdom and peace, be present in my words and our thoughts and our actions, that they might all bear the fullness of your grace. We pray in your holy name. Amen. This particular story of a conversation between a Samaritan woman and Jesus is one that I love. I love it for a number of reasons, but for many years, I think I understood it only in part. There's more at work in this text than I had previously imagined, which, if I'm being honest, is true about most of the Bible. I don't know if this is your story as well. But again and again, I turn to texts that I think are familiar, and I get new insight. I see something I'd missed before, or I hear a piece of background information that shifts the way that I receive the story. For me, it was that way when I heard this particular text taught by a preacher named Grace Matthew. She's currently a pastor at the United Methodist Church in Evanston, Illinois. She grew up in Kenya. In fact, Uh, Mel Wheatley visited her house when she was a child. He was the senior pastor here from 1954 to 1972 and was friends with her father, who was also a pastor. So there's more connections than I had known when I first heard this teaching. Uh, But Grace and Matthew was teaching on this story, and she said some things that rocked my world. Now, in sort of the dominant voice of Christian interpretation that I have heard in my life, this Samaritan woman has been represented as a woman who might have some things to be ashamed of. I don't know if you heard that interpretation. I've heard people explain how she showed up in the well at noon, which would be an uncomfortable time to walk a long distance and gather water, certainly because she wanted to avoid other people, because she was a outcast or pariah. It was uncomfortable. And I've heard people suggest that the fact that Jesus describes how she had five husbands and is living with a man who's not her husband now, that that ought to be a source of some amount of shame, that she should be uh, ashamed for having had so many husbands. But the world of the ancient Near East is not like the world of today. And explaining that a woman had five husbands and is now living with a man who's not your husband Uh, the the clearest explanation for why that would happen is that she's a woman who's buried five husbands, that she's a woman who's grieved the loss of five partners, and is a woman in the ancient Near East who could hold no property or have no security apart from a household led by a male. That represented not only whatever emotional loss came from that tremendous amount of grief— but also the vulnerability, the risk of being a woman who depends on security coming from the household she belongs to. In our Hebrew scriptures, it describes expectations for how if a woman's husband dies, his brother ought to become like a husband to her, take her into his household, and expect— this sounds very strange, and I mean, you're now thinking through your brother-in-law or how this would work. But in a society where women depended on belonging in a male's household, this was a system that allowed for women to have a household to belong to, even if their husbands died. So this woman is identified not so much by shame, but by grief, by loss, by the devastation of so much 
challenge and change and loss in life. As we hear her story then, I like to imagine Jesus meeting her with compassion. I imagine her moving through the world with the sorrow that could only come from having known so much grief. And to encounter someone who could look her in the eyes and say, I see you, I know your story, I know that you're carrying grief, would be a powerful, powerful encounter. Now, often when I've heard this story taught with the suggestion that this woman was somehow ashamed and outcast, a Samaritan who had to go to the well at noon, who'd had five husbands and now was living with a man who wasn't her husband, I've heard it taught as a story about Jesus' grace overcoming all of the things that make us ashamed. But I'd like to pull this woman out of shame. I think she has nothing to be ashamed of. And in fact, in the Orthodox Christian tradition, she's revered as a saint and given a name. Saint Fotini, she's called, which means the enlightened one or the illuminated one. Saint Fotini then becomes a person who receives the gospel, the first person in the gospel of John to become a preacher of the gospel, who encounters Jesus and then takes this message of living water back to her city and joins the apostles in giving life to the church. This woman leaves her, wa- her water jug there at the well and goes on to join Jesus and the disciples in the mission of discipleship. I've heard lots of Bible lessons seen lots of images and Sunday school pamphlets about leaving nets behind, fishermen leaving their nets behind to follow Jesus. But I think not enough about a Samaritan woman leaving her water jar aside to go and follow Jesus. But here she is in the Gospel of John, early in the story, one who sees and receives the message of the Gospel. She has nothing to be ashamed of. She knows the grief of our human life, she recognizes the gift of living water that Jesus offers to share with her. And she's thirsty. She's thirsty because she's known the heaviness of grief, the struggle of life, the unending cycle of returning to the well day after day to get the water that your life and livelihood depends on, the burden of the ordinary, of persisting, in daily things that tend to life, heavy with the cost of life in a world of grief and loss. She's thirsty for a something else. And Jesus offers her this promise of living water, a something more, a something more than the physical water itself that connects her to a God whose love is eternal and whose belonging connects us to one another in a wilder, wider way than we know possible. I don't want to downplay the wildness of Jesus, a Jew and a teacher and a leader, talking to a woman from Samaria. But if we pull back some of the assumptions that there's a value of one over the other, as if Jews were more valuable than Samaritans, and simply set them next to each other as distinctive cultures with their own description of the holy places and righteousness, if we recognize that they're rooted in common ancestors, Jews and Samaritans become a way for us to have a handle to describe the diversities we live with in this world. 
And though often pitted against each other in ways that would value one over the other, this conversation between Jesus, a Jew, and St. Fotini, a Samaritan, is a reminder to us that we're called to be people of conversations that cross the boundary lines of divisions that we've imagined that make us distinct from one another, that keep us separate, that make some of us an us and some of them a them. Jesus, in having this conversation with this Samaritan woman, is refusing to let those boundaries dictate who we belong with or belong to, who's worth conversation, who's worth salvation. Jesus' conversation with this woman at a well in Samaria, with St. Fotini, the illuminated one, is a reminder that part of the work of the gospel is this kind of boundary crossing or bridge building, extending of relationship to people who are different from us, maybe who make us uncomfortable, or who we've been taught to mistrust and distrust and devalue. At the heart of the gospel is this work of building bridges, of connecting, and of mutuality. Jesus and St. Fotini have things that one another needs, offering physical water and living spiritual water that's meeting the thirst of one another. We humans need each other. And too often our differences become a reason, a justification, an excuse for separating and devaluing, for mistrusting and not caring about the well-being of another. We think somehow we can be more holy or more secure by getting those people out of our mix, by staying separate from others who do different, who think different, who speak in a different way or value a different thing as holy. This was part of the difference between Samaritans and Jews, the holy place on which they worshiped. The woman at the well, this Saint Fotini, names this in her conversation with Jesus. We worship this mountain as holy, and you say we worship in Jerusalem. These are not just diversities of custom or language, but the geographical center of the religious universe had become different. Too often, religious values become an excuse for justifying our judgment of another as wrong or sinful or unworthy or devalued. But the call of the gospel is to bridging, to pushing us beyond that to a higher value. In this moment, in the story of U.S. America, too often voices from the Christian church have been used as justification to continue to move uh, in state assemblies and legislatures to criminalize and disempower people because of their gender identity or sexual orientation. This continues to today in a dangerous movement that dehumanizes, that devalues, and puts at risk our human siblings. The movement of the gospel is exactly opposite. It connects us to one another, believes that we get closer to God not by clarifying who we are and who they are, who's the us and who's the them, but by coming together. St. Dorotheus of Gaza in the 6th century, he was a monk and a hermit. He imagined reality as a sort of a wheel, 
a circular wheel on which the boundary, the edge of which he imagined all believers, and at the center of which he imagined God. In St. Dorotheus's vision of reality, then, it's easy to see how when you move from where you are presently toward God, you also get closer to one another. Like spokes on a bicycle wheel, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to all the other people. That the movement toward God always brings us closer into community, more tightly into belonging with one another, to recognizing the image of the divine in everyone we encounter. He was a hermit, which makes this sort of entertaining to me. Even a hermit understood that being close to God also meant being close to others. Now, maybe some of us need a little more alone time in order to live in ways that value our proximity, our closeness, our connection to others. But we cannot get close to God while dividing and isolating ourselves against one another, while drawing lines that separate us from them. We come together. And when we come together, as in the story of Jesus and St. Fotini, we become honest about what it is that we're thirsty for. And there's no shame in being thirsty. Too often in our culture, it's seen as a moral defect to be in need. I don't know if you've experienced this in your own life, but I've seen it happen. I'm not going to point any fingers today. But we Christians who are good at helping like to be the one who can help and become very uncomfortable when we're the one who needs assistance. When we're the one who requires the help of another person, it too often feels threatening to our sense of agency and power and and even righteousness, as if being in need were somehow a moral defect. But we humans are created for belonging with one another. We all need each other. And even when it seems like we're going it on our own, we're standing on the shoulders of generations who've come before us, who've surrounded us and brought us to this place, who have made us the people we are, who are able to be people of compassion and love to extend ourselves in care to one another. The call of the gospel is to be unashamed of our thirst. The fact that we need God, we need one another. We need care and compassion, recognition to be noticed. We need to be celebrated and beloved and known by our communities. As Jesus asks this Samaritan woman, St. Fotini, to give him a drink, he models for us the posture of a faithful person who asks, who knows that I am in need and seeks help from another. She asks for a drink. He asks for a drink from St. Fotini. And she becomes one who asks for the living water that he gives. In this season of Lent, we're invited to reflection, the kind of reflection that sometimes requires us sitting alone with ourselves for a time. The invitation this week is to consider what it is that we are thirsty for, not what's easy to name, but what's deep in our soul. What is it that you're thirsty for? 
Because when we're able to know and notice, to acknowledge and name what it is that we're thirsty for, it becomes easier to seek the help that we need to come to God with the genuine prayers of our hearts, to turn to our neighbors for the thing that will really satisfy, to become in our interconnection, in our mutuality, a living testament of the gift of life that is like living water. It's possible that the gift of salvation that Jesus describes as living water that the wonder of how it works comes in part because it invites us into a dynamic, embodied, ongoing relationship. That part of what makes this water living is that we exchange it, that we give and take and share, and that somehow in this practice of being people who give and receive, who offer and receive, that we share in that life, in a salvation that's not accepting us, making us exceptions from the world, but that's knit into the fabric of what is, that lets us taste the goodness of eternal life as we freely receive and freely give with neighbors and strangers and even those we've named as our enemies. May it be so. Amen.